Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. In today's episode, we talk to Bradley Sherman, the author of The Super Age, which is a really interesting book that explores what happens when the only species on Earth that keeps living longer... Excuse me, uh, spoiler alert, that's humans, by the way. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) thank you, Tim. So when the only species on Earth, us humans, that keep living longer end up having more people over the age of 65 than below it. Yeah, we were totally amazed by the conversation we had with Bradley, in part because of some of the remarkable implications that come from having an older population. Yeah, implications like what happens to the workforce and healthcare and jobs and the economy. I mean, Tim, what happens when we have a whole generation of people getting wealthier in the stock market, but not doing any real work? God, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? We also talked about how this wealth gap mimics the age gap. Okay, my turn for a spoiler alert here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wealthier people live longer. Yeah, thank you. And okay, and Bradley shared a couple of cool tips for living a great life, and they might not be what you expect them to be. So you're gonna have to hang on for those. Mm-hmm. A little, a little twist there. Hmm, I like it. Okay. Before we get to our conversation with Brad, we want to let you know that we have a totally new, totally improved, fantastic, over-the-top, super cool newsletter called Groovy Snacks, (laughs) and we want you to sign up for it. It's a monthly update on some cool behavioral insights and some interesting things that we couldn't resist sharing with you. (laughs) That was a lot of energy on that, and like Kurt said, it is just a monthly thing, so you won't be forced to hit the stop spamming me button because when you sign up, it's just a monthly newsletter, one newsletter per month. We want to stay in touch with you, and we hope that you'll head over to behavioralgrooves.com and just sign up for the Groovy Snacks and just give it a try. Groovy Snacks, I love it. Reminds me of Scooby-Doo. How could you not? It was your idea, by the way. Oh, yeah. I I forgot about that. It was a great idea, wasn't it? Okay. All right. So so with that, folks, we ask you to sit back with Scooby Snacks. No, with two fingers of finely aged demographics and enjoy our conversation with Bradley Sherman. Bradley Sherman, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, we are excited to have you. As always, we'll start with a speed round. So coffee or tea, which is the preferred drink for you? Iced coffee. Iced coffee. Ooh, very particular. With a little coconut milk. Ooh, all right. That's pretty specific. Yeah, it's my morning drink. All right. Oh, okay. So (laughs) you do this every day. Do you have a particular brew that you like? Uh, I have an espresso machine, which is God's gift to the, well, not God's gift to the planet, God's gift to me. Terrible <laughs> for the planet. But uh, two out, a, two, a double espresso over ice with, with a little coconut milk, a roidy coconut milk, which is very hard to find, but it's delicious. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Would, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? Uh, musician, 100%. If you had to choose one musician, who would that be? It would have to be somebody like Tony Bennett. Oh. Well, you don't even have to say like Tony Bennett. You could just say Tony Bennett. Well, I say like Tony Bennett because Tony is obviously in a state of mental decline right now. Mm. And um, I say like him because there are a few musical artists alive today that have had this kind of lived experience that can not only tell me about the past, but can also tell me about the present. Yeah. And that are so open to straddling generations. You know, I mean, him and Lady Gaga's collaboration, you know, that's a 60 year age difference. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. pretty spectacular. Yeah. So, yeah, somebody like Tony Bennett for sure. Okay. Okay. So, Betty White just passed away as we are, are recording this, which is a tragic loss. But was Betty White better in the Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show or in Golden Girls? Well, I grew up on the Golden Girls. I was going to say, I thought you might like the Golden Girls. I'm partial. She was great on Mary Tyler Moore, but I watched those in reruns on Nick at Night. <laughs> I watched the Golden Girls in real time as a as a little gay boy, and uh, 
yeah, I just, that show yeah. was so subversive <laughs> and so prescient. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things that, that it's kind of like, we know the episodes, we know what they say, and we really love her yeah. as a character. And she was something. Oh and the way God. that character was written was special. There won't be yeah. another one like that. Never. That is true. And and the way that you talk about that, this idea that it seems like this really wholesome kind of thing, but it was really a subversive show. I mean, they were people forget that like there were not only did they actively talk about homosexuality, but there was a gay character in the first couple episodes that was written out. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't don't remember. Oh, yeah. He was like a like a houseboy uh, for them. But written out, like, was it too taboo? I think it was too taboo for the time. Like, they got, they went over the line, so they had to pull back to the line. Mm-hmm. Bravo for them for doing it, though. Yeah, amazingly forward-thinking to to have somebody who was essentially openly out on a show. But also, the prescience of that show is, really should be embraced as kind of getting us to this new period that we're in. Because early on, we're thinking, oh, there's these four women living together, and they're kind of having this fabulous retirement, and in Miami and they all seem so happy. They're dating, they're cool, they're fun. But by the end of it, you know, they're starting to show the fractures in our system. You know, there's com- there's conversations about ageism, about the inability to find a job. There's talks just about kind of mental decline mm. and, and the lack of savings that women have in large part because their husbands did a bad job at, you know, making money and putting it away. You know, it was a really, really important show. And I don't think we gave it credit for the for its wittiness and its banter, but when yeah. you look at the real sociocultural pieces that sit there, it's it was revolutionary. I'm gonna go back and re-look at it. I, I have to admit, I just thought it was a clever sitcom, but okay. I can't tell you how many times I've watched it. So wow. <laughs> picking apart those pieces. And I and I actually watched it. It was one of my few releases when writing my book was to to watch that show just because it it was something that was constant. You know, I wrote it, I wrote the book during the pandemic and mm. You know, occasionally you just needed a hug from something familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was that hug yeah. occasionally. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good question, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's our fourth speed round question is, in Japan, are there more diapers produced for babies or for older adults? It is for older adults. And it's been that way now for, oh, my, almost a full decade, I think we're coming up yeah. on. Yeah. Japan is is the first super-aged country in the world. And, and for folks who don't know what that term means... It means that at least one out of five people are over the age of 65. Um, But there are other components to this. People in a super age society tend to live longer on average than most. Mm. So there are people living well into their 80s, 90s, and even 100 plus years. In a country like Japan, even the United States and most of the developed world, the 85 plus population is now the fastest growing demographic on the planet. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's astonishing. Yeah. So there are realities that come with getting older, and, and sometimes they're unpleasant ones. But there are also realities to a world where people are having fewer babies. Mm. You just don't need enough diapers. You know, you just don't need as many bottles. You just don't need as much formula or cribs or strollers. But you need a hell of a lot more walkers for mm. the oldest old or the ones that are most feeble or wheelchairs. I mean, it's just part of the shift in what we're making and what we're experiencing as people. Yeah. And we'll get into that. I have one last speed round question for you. And and I just want to, <laughs> I, I want to know this one. So has the first person who will live to be 150 years old already been born in your opinion? We believe so. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, pretty well held belief now amongst demographers and, and those in the scientific community that the first person alive is going to make it to 150. And that's that's through so many different interventions that that reality is going to be true. The oldest woman to live on this planet that we know was a French woman who died a few years back, and she lived to be 122, okay. memory serves. Okay. So this woman would have been born um, before 1900. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so when you start thinking about the context of time here, your mind starts to explode. So the first person born to be 150 today was probably born in the last 25 years. Yep. And um, yeah, getting to 150 is going to mean that they're going to live into 2125. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now wrap your head around that for a minute. No, yeah. And then let it explode. (laughs) When you think about time and the time that we know as human beings and the fact that we are extending life at a pretty good clip. It's nothing short of revolutionary. 
people will say, you know, man's greatest achievement was getting to the moon. No, man's greatest achievement was preventing kids from dying and extending life. Yeah. I mean, that's remarkable what we've done in that regard. And there's a whole new set of scientists, of doctors and, and physicians, as well as uh, investors, both billionaires and VC funds, that believe that we can extend life indefinitely. When you say extend life indefinitely, you're talking about literally living forever? Yeah, but of course, you know, we have to be able to adjust in our heads what living forever means. Does living forever mean replacing body parts? Does living forever mean that we're somehow able to catch our conscience in some way, capture our conscience into a digital format? It gets a little science fiction-y, and it gets harder <laughs> for people to grasp. And you're a but, data geek, so I, I don't know Yeah, how. so, you know, like this stuff, like as much of a futurist I am, I'm still grounded in data. So when you take a look at some of the innovations that are happening right now, they're looking to compress morbidity. Mm. Um, and comp compressing morbidity means you're just shrinking the number of years that a person is sick in life, especially at the end. So what doctors are trying to do, what these scientists are trying to do is shrink that period of time. So rather than getting a cancer and being sick for five, 10, 15 years with that cancer and then dying or heart disease, you just fall dead one day. Mm -hmm. And I think given the options, I'm gonna choose just falling dead one day. I'm not really <laughs> interested in a slow decline. That sounds pretty miserable. So Brad, let's talk a little bit about the book, um, Super Age. And so in the book, what I find really fascinating is that you identify some really interesting trends with our demographics. We're entering into a time, as you say, that is unique in human history. So you, can you tell us a little bit about what those changes are? And then I think more importantly, what I'd love to hear is like, what are some of the implications of this? Because it's not just about older people. This is about our societal, you know, world in general and, and yeah. how it impacts everybody. Yeah. Well, let me give you a history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. This is We're great. here. I'll take notes. <laughs> <laughs> for all of humanity, for most of humanity, humans were born. The vast majority of them died before adulthood, you know, about half, at least on average. Our average life expectancy was around 30 to 35 years, depending on what period of time. This didn't mean that people didn't live long lives. There were people that did. In fact, some very notable people like Benjamin Franklin here in the United States, who lived until he was about 84. Life expectancy is averages. Mm -hmm. Okay? And most of our problem with life was at the front end. Incredible high levels of mortality for young people. One out of four children on average would die before the age of one. One out of three before the age of five. Oh, wow. And nearly half by the age of adulthood, which is, you know, 16 to 18, depending on what culture you live in. That all began to change during the Industrial Revolutions. And we've had four of them so far. The first one starting in 1760. This is where people start moving from the fields into the cities. This is when we create innovations that actually end up creating new problems to be solved. Mm-hmm. The big push, though, where things really started moving happened in the second Industrial Revolution, which started around 1870. In this period, which lasts till just before or just at the start of the First World War, we put a lot of energies into fixing some of the problems that ailed a newly urban society. We focused on waterborne diseases. We focused on food production and quality making sure that people could trust the food chain, the food supply chain. We started developing vaccines. All of this stuff started happening at this time. And what happened was the infant mortality rate collapsed. So in 1914, personal story, my grandfather's born. Mm -hmm. He's born on the coal fields of Western Pennsylvania, the poorest of the poor. So those statistics that I mentioned, he had less than a 50% chance of making it to adulthood. I mean, he should have died by all measures because by the age of 14, he was in the mills. Mm. Well, prior to that time, you know, he could have been in the mills even earlier than that. But through social innovation, we pulled them out, those kids out of the mills. We pulled them out completely. We allowed them to go to school. So going to 14 was revolutionary for him. He survived went to war, came home, built a middle-class middle life for himself. So most of our history has been focused on fixing youth mortality, okay? But in fixing youth mortality, a couple different things happen. The biggest one is our population explodes. So in 1900, global population is roughly 2 billion people. 
In 100 years, our global population is nearly 8 billion people. Quadrupled over a very short period of time. Yeah. So a lot of disruption has happened, happened in that period. But more so, I think, for this book is that society starts to catch up very quickly. Our birth rates drop precipitously in large regard because of economics, because of education. Women start realizing that they don't need to live a traditional lifestyle. They can go to school, uh, have an education, become self-empowered, gain the right to vote, do all these things that men have been able to do for a long period of time. They don't have to be in the kitchen. They don't have to be tending to a house. They don't have to be a machine that makes babies for the economic survival of a household. There's also some scientific side to this too, in the sense that, at least in the West, men's uh, sperm counts have been dropping for some period of time now. So there's an overall question of what fertility looks like. All of this comes together, this decrease in birth rates, the survival rate increase to create a world that's vastly older than it ever has been before. And as you get older, your likelihood of living longer actually increases. So, you know, if you take a look at the boomers, boomers started being born in 1946, a total of 76 million of them were born. Okay. 70 million of them are still alive today. Yeah. Like that's pretty shocking. And that means that there are all these new strains on our system that didn't exist before. So all this social engineering was happening on the low end of life around children. We were also tinkering with the, with the end of life too. We were building Medicare, we we're building Social Security, all to kind of solve for older populations. Well, now things have kind of gotten discombobulated here. And we have all of these older people, fewer younger people. So our populations, which used to look like a pyramid with a lot of kids at the bottom, very few older people at the top, has squared off in many countries. So they look like a column or a square or you know some type of square-like shape. And at some point, they're going to start to invert, meaning they're going to be like an upside-down pyramid. They're going to look like a top, as they do in Japan today. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I mean, <laughs> right. there's no preordained number of people that need to live on the planet. And I think most of us can agree that Today, we're probably a little overstretched, certainly with environmental change that's sped up in recent years. There's nothing that says we have to have 8 billion or 10 billion or 2 billion people living on this planet, but it does have implications for the market. It does have significant implications for how we allocate resources. It does have implications for how different generations get along with each other or don't. And it has geopolitical, believe it or not, geopolitical implications too. Because in virtually all of the industrialized world, three quarters of G20 countries, the birth rates have gone below what's commonly referred to as replacement rate. Mm -hmm. There are only two places in the world where we can find consistent birth rates above replacement rate. And those are in sub-Saharan Africa and in parts of Latin America. But virtually everywhere else in the world, birth rates are below replacement rate. In the US, we've had... Up until 2020, we had six years of population uh, birth rate decline, with 2020 being our lowest mm. ever wow. in the history of the United States. Wow. <laughs> wow. And while 2020 was an improvement, it only improved by one-tenth of one percent. Oh. <laughs> so you're not talking about something seismic here. 2020 also uh, was the first year that China recorded a population contraction since 1959. Okay. Even with their one-child policy. Well, that's why the population contraction has occurred. Yep. They artificially contracted, and there's generally held belief that once your population starts to shrink or once it's, your birth rates start to contract, they don't expand again. There's okay. been a lot of attempts to for countries to social, socially engineer their way out of this with varying degrees of success, but nobody has gotten back to replacement rate. Hmm. And I would say that if there's any countries that have done the most admirable job of trying to fix this, it's France and the Nordic countries. And their birth rates are similar to the United States. So, you know, you hear a lot of people complaining about how awful it is to have a kid here and how there's no support and there's no finances. Well, take a look at the Nordic countries. Take a look at France, where there's this incredible amount of support. They're not doing any better. Mm. So it's not just a question of what levels of support exist. It's the fact that there's been a fundamental change in how we think about children 
and whether or not to have them. You know, my grandfather and his seven brothers and sisters were born, A, because there was no birth control, certainly nothing reliable. They were in a Catholic family, so the the idea of any type of family planning outside of have more babies was not <laughs> something that they could That was see. the plan. That was the plan. Family planning was have more. Yeah, yeah exactly. And my great-grandmother wasn't educated at all. So she had this was what she did. She knew her role, quote unquote, knew her role. Um, that's changed dramatically. And you know, once we solved for infant mortality here in the US and Europe. We quickly began exporting it to places in the developing world, too. It became the mission of the West to solve for these crises. And what's that, what that has caused now is countries to become old before they become rich. Their birth rates have plummeted before they really become mm. wealthy Western nations. So they don't have pension systems. They don't have strong health care systems. They're struggling. And it's places that you'd find... Really shocking. You know, one of the super age countries that everyone kind of gasps at when I mention it is Cuba. Yeah. 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 They say, what? And Brazil. And people say, no, 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 that's impossible. <laughs> no, it is possible. But also countries that are in the transition right now, places like Vietnam and Thailand. And it's so funny when I talk to my Australian colleagues who, you know, that's vacation land for them. That's where they did their backpacking years. And I say, would you ever think of, of either of those countries as particularly old? Well, no, there's kids everywhere. No, there aren't. Right. right. And I think that, that gets to a, a, another prevailing theme in the book is that because of urbanization, because of these other trends, our eyes are really fixated on cities. And cities, for the most part, have remained relatively young places mm. to be. But if you go into the countryside in virtually any country on this planet – you're going to find some degree of population aging, if not population decline, contraction. And more so than in the cities, right? 100%. Yeah. So in the book, I call it canaries in the coal mine. You know, when your rural populations start to contract, when the young people can no longer afford to live mm -hmm. there because there's greater opportunity in the urban environments, that's a big signal that rapid population aging and depopulation are in the near future for these yeah. places. No, I'm curious earlier in your career, you, you started working with AARP. I so did. you, you kind of got into this uh, aging issue. I'm just curious, what was, where was the chicken or the egg? Were you curious about aging before you joined AARP or was that the catalyst that kind of triggered the, all of this? Oh, no, no, no. AARP wasn't the catalyst for getting interested in aging. I actually got interested because of my grandparents. Um, my grandparents were part-time caregivers for me and my brother. My parents were a two-income household. I spent a lot of time with them in my early, early years as de facto daycare. Interesting. Yeah, but when they retired and when they went into care, I was at university, at, at American University in D.C., and I'd travel back and forth all the time to see them. They lived in a, in a community outside of Pittsburgh called Longwood at Oakmont, which is a very nice continuing care retirement community. And... As I would drive between Pittsburgh and D.C., I'd notice as I got to the center of Pennsylvania, the population become a lot older, a lot whiter, a lot poorer. And most of these older people that I saw were engaged in some type of mm. work, paid work, you know, whether it be fast food or, you know, convenience store, pumping gas or, or even cleaning toilets. You know, little old men, little old ladies in that kind of classic definition hunched over, very gray, very worn, were doing jobs that were hard. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? And it was just something I couldn't get out of my head. So I got into it, A, because I thought my grandparents' experience in long-term care was mixed mm -hmm. at best. And these are people that mm -hmm. saved their entire lives, had a fairly comfortable retirement, certainly could afford world-class care. I thought they had a mixed bag in terms of care at the end of the day. So I thought you know, from a social kind of welfare, for social justice point of view, what happens to people who mm -hmm. don't? Yeah. But, but more importantly, the bigger question was, how does this happen where my grandfather was born into poverty, achieved middle class, lower middle class, but achieved middle class, and is able to retire in relative comfort? And these folks who are likely born into similar economic conditions could not. 
You bring up in the book a really interesting idea, which is that, and, and I'm going to quote you here. It says, you, you said that success in old age has almost always been tied to one's economic situation. It's kind of what we're talking about here. Sure. I would think that that has changed given pensions and social security and all of that, but you argued that it hasn't really, that it's still relatively uh, the wealthier you are, the better, more likely you're going to age successfully. Is that true? Did I? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly true. You know, part of your success in old age is is what you start mm. with because wealth is multiplied over time. Health is multiplied over time. And the converse is true too. You know, if you don't have wealth, you achieve it slower, if not at all. If you have kind of major conditions, especially considering the state of our current healthcare system, it can hobble you or bankrupt you overnight. Mm. And it's very hard to get back on your feet if you can at all. It's also one of those things that it builds over time. So we talk about inequality a lot these days. That's, that's, that's a conversation point nearly everywhere. And it's an important one because wealth begets mm. wealth. So when my grandparents passed away, they were able to pass some wealth to my mother and to her brother. My mother and her brother were then able to grow that wealth into some more wealth, and they're going to pass even more wealth to me. Well, because of that, you know, I'm able to eat well. I'm able to keep a roof over my head. I have greater security. If something happens, there's a, there's a safety net. There's a slush yeah, fund of mm -hmm, sorts. Right. Well, if you don't have that luxury, and then I'm, able, I'm going to be able to live yeah. long. So my grandfather lived to be almost 91 years old. I fully anticipate that my mother, who, who's strong as an ox, my father, too, are going to live well into their hundreds. I'll probably live around that. I mean, even, even statistically today, I have a greater than 50% chance of living until 95, wow. statistically, just because of you know, race, economics, you know, health outcomes, uh, healthy behaviors. Like It's pretty good yeah. odds. But I'll tell you, if you look across all, any other economic group, and economics are largely tied to race, let's be abundantly clear here. The richest rich and the poorest poor nationwide now have about a 20-year-plus longevity gap, meaning that somebody of wealth gets to live an extra 20 years on average than somebody who's poor. Wow. Okay? Now, that's 20 years on average across right. the country. That means that there's, there's... There's even greater variation. <laughs> right, right. And it often shows up in the strange... It often shows up in the strangest places. But again, it's intimately connected to race... It's intimately connected to gender, too. Um, so as a white gay man, cisgendered man, we actually earn the most in the country mm. now. But that doesn't mean we live the longest. Asian women, on average, live the longest. And the people who earn the least and live the shortest lives are trans women of mm. color. And in a city like Washington, D.C., which is my adopted hometown, there's a nearly 27-year life expectancy gap between the richest rich and the poorest poor, the richest white person and the poorest black person. In New York, it's roughly 27 years as well. In a place like Chicago, and this all, and I'm, sure you're, I'm sure you're picking up on this, this all correlates to historically segregated yeah. cities. Chicago, it's nearly 31 years. Wow. That's just in Chicago. So, and that's not the worst of it. <laughs> <laughs> it gets oh, worse. God. Well, lay it on us. We're, 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 we're all done. So, highest, highest life expectancy in the United States today is a tiny little village in North Carolina called Farrington Village. And in Farrington Village, the life expectancy at birth now is 97 years. Wow. Go cross country to the reservation in Oklahoma, Stillwell. Life expectancy there is 56. Oh my gosh. 41 years. So we're talking about a two-generation life gap, life expectancy gap between those two places. So when you think about it, and this is what kind of boggles my mind, how people don't see what's literally right in front of their eyes. For me, it's everywhere. Of course, it's my business. But if you look around, if you just open your eyes a little tiny bit, you're going to see how this demographic change affects everyone and everywhere. It surprised me, especially during the BLM movement, that the longevity gap wasn't more emphasized mm. because it isn't fair. It's a fundamental unfairness of our system. Well, and you brought up structural systemic issues. 
they build up over time and they create a really unfair world. Yeah, for I mean, you, you just talked about this generational wealth building. And so that you have 20 extra years on average to build to extra <laughs> wealth to pass that along then that then lends itself again. So it's, it's a compounding interest factor that goes into then and that that then impacts your longevity. So it's it's like this this self-replicating, you know, wheel that just tailwinds. Yeah. It's like yeah. tailwinds. Well, well, and also also consider the reality that people who are wealthier tend to be better invested in the stock market. The stock market has done incredibly well. So you have a whole generation of people now, these boomers that are essentially making money while not working, mm-hmm. earning money while not working, and I, if I've heard one person say it, I've heard a dozen, they can't believe how much money they're making just by their money sitting in yeah. the market. Yeah. And when you think about the, the, the levels of work that people have to, to get to achieve any sort of wealth today, it's nothing sort of shocking that this is okay. Yeah. You know, something I reflected on when I was reading the book was my own experience with uh, people who are aging, my grandparents, their siblings, their, uh, you know, my great aunts and uncles, that that sort of thing. And until actually there has been no one in my direct line of family who has been in any kind of a, a care facility. Everyone mm-hmm. has convalesced with family members. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about about the differences in what was happening in, when people were growing old in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s versus growing old today and in the infrastructure perspective of families taking people in versus, uh, versus, uh, you know, paid facilities to do this. Mm -hmm. Now there's been a kind of an ebb and flow. It does tack to wealth again. So, and I'm speaking in generalizations here. So, so bear with me when I say these things, you know, uh, lower income immigrant families, they tend to live in multi-generational houses. They take care of their own in large part because they want to, or there's some familial obligation, or they can't afford going mm-hmm. into institutionalized care. This idea of a nuclear family, I think David Brooks is the one who pointed out so clearly in his book, doesn't exist anymore. It was a fallacy that we just didn't get right. So the only people that really live in a in that type of setting anymore, a nuclear family, tend to be those who have a lot of wealth, because that wealth can be then used to bring in the services that family members would have done anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of a it, it, the wealth allows you to break free of gender norms too, you know. So a woman can be a corporate CEO, but she doesn't take necessarily take care of the household anymore. But she has somebody else who she's hired to take care of the household, to do the laundry, to take care of the kids. That's a trade off that comes with wealth. Another trade off that comes with wealth is certainly living in a retirement community. At least that has been that way. But I think for those people who are who have a lot of wealth today, I think there's even a shift with them. They want to stay in their mm. homes. Yeah. In fact, most people want to stay in their homes. It's a it's one of the few constants that we find globally is what people want, is they want to die where they oh. lived. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in their physical structure, but it has to be within their community. But for those that have wealth and they can afford to bring care in, they're going to do it. They're going to die in their home. Yeah. So there isn't a clear path anymore, Tim. I don't think that's something that we can generally accept. In the 1950s, the 1960s, a full retirement industry developed in this country. We were fed this idea of what you should be doing and what you should have done during that period was move to Mm. Florida or Arizona and live out your days playing golf or tennis. And And that's what a lot of people did. Yeah. And a lot of people ended up very unhappy. Yeah. It wasn't a fulfilling life. We know now that we made a lot of mistakes in that middle century period. And we can rectify them today because we've captured the data. We capture what science says about our lives. And on, on average, you know, we do better in terms of our cognitive and our physical health if we stay employed. We do worse if we leave work. So it's like retirement's a really bad deal, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but but and, and you bring up a really good point there, right? This idea that well, retirement might be a, a horrible deal on the, on the large macro pieces, but you, we have been kind of the, the, the ethos, the, the kind of societal norms is like, that's what you're striving for. You're striving to get to that point where I don't have to work. And I think there, and this is just me pontificating, um, but you know, it's this idea of, I think the the change should be, it's like, we should get to the point where it's not, 
we have to work, but we get to choose what work we do, right? And I think that, and you you talk about this, you you changed your career mid-time, uh, mid-career, and it was hard. And for many people, that's a, it's a tough decision to, to change that. And again, it goes back to some of the wealth pieces. Do I have enough that I feel comfortable that I can make that shift and do something that is probably more in line with what I like to do? Or do I get stuck, as you said, in some of those middle Pennsylvania, you know, old, 80, old ladies and men who are cleaning toilets and working at a convenience store? And that's not going to be, I think, positive either. I'm not going to lie. There's some luxury to being able to pivot careers. I mean, and obviously that comes with being well-saved, well-invested. I won't debate my privilege there. I know I'm very privileged in that regard. But I also realize that there are some innate realities that people need to address and they need to address quickly. The first is evolve or die. You know, there's this kind of weird drumbeat that's, that's come about lately about ageism and everything's ageist right now. And I don't buy into that. I mean, I, there's plenty that, that it is. It's an accepted bias and we lean into it whenever we can. But when I'm looking at employees, when I'm looking at the people that I work with, I'm looking for people that are skilled. I'm looking for people that are talented. I know I may be the exception to the rule, but I'm looking for the good stuff. And experience, good experience, not bad experience, good experience is what I'm looking for at the end of the day. So if you've got 20 years more than I do, bring it on. The second thing is, and I say this all the time, if you ain't learning, you ain't earning. And (laughs) I don't understand who in this world thinks it's okay just because you're 50 or 60 years old to stop picking up new skills. How dare you? I mean, I don't understand why that's okay. If you're a young person in the workplace, you are scrappy. You are constantly picking up new skills. You're constantly going after the next big thing. Now, your, your, your kind of worldview may change when you're older, but, but that doesn't mean you should stop learning. That doesn't mean you should stop picking up new things. And I'll tell you, in this day and age in particular, I mentioned the industrial revolutions earlier. We're smack dab in one right now. It's called the fourth industrial revolution. The technological advancements that are happening right now are happening at such an incredible pace that even I struggle at times to keep up with them. And I like to think of myself as a pretty tech savvy guy, but even I'm, you know, I would say six months late to the metaverse. And something like the metaverse is going to completely remake the working world for us, the way care is delivered, the way products and services come into our homes. You know, folks need to take some ownership because the institutions aren't going to do it for you anymore. No. And if you think your employer is going to make sure you have every little bit of learning that you need, you're living in a fantasy world. Yeah. A lot of that responsibility falls to you. Well, speaking of the the delights of the fantasy world, um, what's on your playlist these days? <laughs> oh, good transition, Tim. <laughs> good transition. That is a good transition. I mean, I think we've just left Christmas, so thank God we've gotten that <laughs> off the playlist. <laughs> yes. At some point, you need to start clawing at your brain. Yeah. Wait, but no more Mariah Carey. No now. more Mariah Carey. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm listening to a lot of classic jazz, the American songbook. That's oh. that's squarely in what I have on today because – Crooners? Singers? Crooners, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Oh. I mean, I I can't get enough of that right now. And it just, in a period like this, which as you can imagine is quite hectic for me with the book coming out and circulating widely, it's just nice to have something that is calming. And how about Ella Fitzgerald live at Berlin, 1960? Oh God. Oh my God. God, don't you know, do this to me today, <laughs> man. Like, like when I listened to that performance, I you could hear the the tension in the room. Like they're so mm-hmm. excited to hear yeah. her utter her first note. There's just this palpable electricity. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now it's that's the one thing I keep pulling myself back to is is the classics. Yeah. Because cool. there is a lot to be said about things that were done before we were here. Or, you know, and we should, we should embrace them when we can, you know, there's something like last us well beyond when when we're gone. Trust me. I mean, I hope, I hope this book lasts a 10 year as much less, you know, a hundred (laughs) years. Well, we are, we are running, we're just out of time. 
We yeah. are so grateful to have this conversation with you, Bradley. Thank you for being a guest today on Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. It was really great to be here, Tim and Kurt. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Brad, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our aged and wise old brains. Wow. Well, they're certainly going to be a lot older, hopefully wiser. I don't know about wise, but they're certainly going to get older. Well, they're already old. I mean, you and I have you know, combined. We're, <laughs> oh. we're over 100. You know, oh, if we think about that, we might be. You know, we're not going to be that first person to get to 150 because we're out of that little, you know, window of operation. However, your kids and my kids, they might be, they might be be. in that kind of, they might be that person that lives to be 150 years old. It's a pretty amazing idea, isn't it? To go that far in life. And and think about that. So you, you mentioned this idea. Yeah, we're getting older, but are we getting wiser? That is, I think, the a whole big question that we didn't even get into with Brad that we could have definitely done because, you know, at some point, and this is an interesting piece, this idea that if you're not learning, you're not earning, as he said, this idea that you need to constantly learn. And particularly as we get older, you know, the, the thing about learning new things is that people go, Oh, it's too hard. I'm so set in my ways and different aspects. But to be wise, to to really take that information and all of the wisdom that you already have accumulated over the years, you got to keep learning. You got to be able to leverage that with new information, with new insights, with new thoughts. Now, my personal opinion. Well, where else? What is quality of life if if you're not actually doing or thinking or somehow processing something better today than you did the day before. Well, because I can sit back and relax and have my money in the stock market and just feel rich and buy all those, all those little, you know, doodads that make my life better and make sure that nothing gets in the way of that, regardless of what that means for anybody else. There you go. Well, say what you want about status quo bias, but I think it would get boring if your day to day was literally doing the same thing. Now, you're also talking about if you, in this imaginary future state, if you were buying things on a regular basis, that would be adding something to your life. I don't know how much value there is in that. I'm not going to get into the value judgment of that, but you'd be adding these doodads. Is that learning though? That That's the big piece. Well, is, no. that, is that taking where we are and learning and going to the next level? And that I think is a really, I don't know, good, regardless of where you are in your, in your demographic aging, right? If you're you're 15 years old, if you're 30 years old, if you're 45, if you're 60, you need to constantly be figuring out what you can learn, what old information needs to be updated. That I think is the hard part because we get stuck in our ways and we go, oh, but this is the way it is. We see this so many times in corporations that, you know, they they start off great. They're doing all this fantastic stuff. And then cultural norms fit sit, fit in, and all of a sudden, you know, our ways of thinking get stuck into these ruts. You know, it's not a groove; it's a rut. And then, right, and then it becomes yeah. this, you know, death cycle. So, well, I want to go back to uh, this idea of living a long life. Okay, and one of the things that really struck me about this idea of living to 150 years old, Bradley sort of implied it might not be with all your original parts. Well, and he's uh, talked about those people who are do, looking at that research right now, the idea of downloading your consciousness into right. the, you know, the, the Ethernet of, you know, whatever the computer structure is, you know, again, different parts of your body, you know, the six million dollar man. I know there's a few people who might be old enough to remember that show, right? This like bionics and all of the other factors that come into this. But yeah, that's that's interesting. This idea that all right, I can live longer, but not with all my original parts. It's like you know, rebuilding that 1972 Chevy Impala, and uh, you know, not having all the original parts in it. So, and, and that reminds me of the myth of Theseus. Okay. So, what okay, is so, the myth of Theseus, Tim? Because I am unaware of this myth. So, Theseus was a 
I think he was a Greek uh, sea captain okay. and he had a ship, right? And so he would go, he would take his ship and it was a very, he was a very successful captain in, in the war, but the ship would get beat up and battered at, uh, in battles. And so he would bring the ship back to a particular shore and uh, take off the battered up uh, timbers, throw them on the shore and bring new timbers on and replace them. And over the course of many years and many battles, basically the whole ship gets replaced. Mm. And so the question in the ship of Theseus with the ship of Theseus is where is the ship of Theseus? He's taken all the old timbers and laid them on the shore. Those were sort of the originals, if you will. But he's sailing around on his ship. So is the ship of Theseus on the shore or is it under his you know, domain and sailing, under his command? And that, I think, is the is the question that we have. Is it me? If I get to be 150 years old, but I've got somebody else's heart and somebody else's lungs and somebody else's liver and somebody else's brain, Ooh. is it still me? Well, that's a fascinating thing. This idea that, all right, are we... Are we the parts? Are we some different aspect of that? Again, the, the idea of having a brain replacement at some time, I mean, that is just an interesting yeah. piece, right? Is it me who has the body that is the new the person, or is it me who has the brain in this totally new body that is the person? And and again, yeah. it's yeah. like, well, is the brain wiped clean and your old memories and different things? What makes up me? That's the that's the bigger. That's a huge philosophical question here, man. We could go on and on and on, but <sighs> my favorite. Oh my gosh, that's my fun. favorite. What else did you want to groove on, Kurt? Oh, this whole idea of the the wealth, the the generational wealth gap, and mm. I thought this was a key insight when I was reading the book, it struck me. And then when Bradley was talking about it, it even struck me more that there's this, this loop that is happening. This idea that, all right, uh, the rich live longer and by living longer, you're creating more wealth because you're either working longer or your money for you is, as you said, reinvested in the market and generating more wealth that then you can pass on to the next generation, which now is wealthier, and thus they get to live longer. And so it's this reinforcing loop that continues to happen. And on the contrary to that is those folks who, you know, aren't as wealthy, don't live as long on average, and don't have the opportunity to build up that wealth as the longer lived folks do. And thus they can't pass that wealth on and therefore their dependents, their subsequent generations from them are earning less and living less long, you know, many as many years. That yeah. is it just it it blows my mind away. And it's just one of those things that we have to think about is that, you know, again, it gets into the systemic pieces of some of the factors that go into our our everyday life. Yeah. So a couple things about that. The first thing that struck me uh, um, when you started talking about that was uh, Dolly Chug's comment about tailwinds, mm -hmm. right? That we have got, uh, we are totally missing out. We're, we're relatively blind to this idea of certain uh, wealthier people having these tailwinds generation after generation, and that those who are poor are facing headwinds generation after generation. And, and so that that's the first thing. The other thing is that I just had a conversation with, with a colleague of ours who is German by birth, mm -hmm. and her father uh, recently went through a dignified death in Germany. He was paralyzed from the, from the neck down and in very, very poor health and decided, because his mental state was sharp, he was going to have a dignified death. And, and draw an end to his own life. And it, it it was a touching conversation that I had with her about this, but it also got me thinking, how long do I want to live? Mm. And I've never really thought about a specific year, but I certainly want to live a short amount of time convalescing. Mm. I, I want to figure out a way to minimize that, that period of my life when I'm unable and I'm really frail and, and can't get things done either mentally or physically. 
those were things that kind of came to mind in, in this discussion with Brad about not just the generational wealth gap, but about how long we're going to live. It just really struck me. Yeah, there's something to that. In, you know, we have evolved and we're continuing to evolve in, in that sense. And But evolutionary, you know, yeah, there were older people, but on average, people didn't live as long, which is right. another really interesting right. fact. The, the idea that that was a, a, a mind blower that, hey, our, our average age is extending, not necessarily because people are living significantly longer, although we are living longer, but that our child death rate has dropped and plummeted so much. And that's fascinating yeah. uh, just from a mathematical kind of perspective. But going back to how long do you want to live is – yeah, we were we designed to live oh. where our bodily functions are are breaking down, that we have our back pains because our, you know, Henry G. And we talked with him about, you know, our spine was originally designed to be on all fours. And it's not necessarily it was an adaptation to be upright on two feet and thus yeah. after so many years we start getting back pains and all these other things and so we're still working it out yeah. yeah this idea that i can live to be 150 is then transposed by do i want to live to be 150 yeah i'm reminded of of that back pain uh, risk or that risk of standing on two feet, the bipedalism from Henry G. Every time I, I walk our 18-month-old Aussie doodle puppy on icy and snowy roads <laughs> around my house. <laughs> oh, man, don't pull too hard, buddy. Hey, uh -huh. I want to just, I, I have to just hit a couple of life tips that I just loved. Okay. When that Bradley said, hey, there's two things that you got to make sure that you're doing you know, to, to really make life meaningful. And they were not what I expected. Okay. The first, the first one was evolve or die. Oh. <laughs> you know, that sounds a little harsh, but like, don't give an excuse to, oh, well, that's the way I did it when I was a kid. It's like, it's not, life isn't like what you, what it is now. You know, when you were a kid, it was different. Now it's now do now evolve, evolve with the world. Yeah. I thought that was, that was fantastic. And the other one was, if you ain't learning, you ain't earning. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this whole idea that we are going to be earning longer and that, you know, that, that piece. And I think both of those are really fantastic life lessons. They're life lessons that are just not for old people. They are for every age group. And I think that's really important. So agreed. All right. So with that, folks, we hope you have enjoyed our discussion with Brad as well as our grooving session on all the king cool things that he shared with us. And if you did, we would appreciate it if you shared the episode with somebody, maybe that recently retired friend or your uncle, the, the <laughs> uncle that doesn't believe in conspiracy theories, right? All right. <laughs> right. The best way for us to grow our community is with you all just putting this episode link on, out on Facebook or Instagram and saying, hey, this was cool. That is that is absolutely it. So please, uh, please take us up on that. If you would, uh, we would be very appreciative. And as always, we hope that this week you take some of Brad's super cool ideas and go out and find your groove. <laughs>